You know, most problems in healthcare are fixed already. Primary care is already cured on the fringes. Reversing burnout, physician shortages, bad business models, forced buyouts, factory medicine, high deductible insurance that squeezes the docs and is totally inaccessible to most of the employees. The big squeeze is always on for docs. It's the acceleration of cost and the deceleration of reimbursements. I want you to meet those on this show that are making a difference with host Ron Barshop, CEO of Beacon Clinics. That's me. So doctor shortages are 100% created by doctors and teaching hospitals. We know this, that doctor shortages are 100% artificial. We feel it in longer wait times as patients, especially in rural areas where we are becoming care deserts as we lose a rural hospital almost weekly. But it's really about economics and greed. The solutions, number one, right now we have 32,500 slots for residents to enter in teaching residencies and teaching hospitals. And we subsidize almost 100,000 of these to the tune of about $600 million in our federal budget since 1994, that's gone unchanged. So there's a lot of hollering about that. Yet the residents are billed out at 40 times their 60 to 65,000 head janitor's wage. So they are highly profitable, believe it. Then we could teach residents based on supply and demand. Most teaching hospitals can and would expand a profit center with 70 to 80% margins, like a 60,000 a year resident. I would use that $589,000 from the federal budget as slotting fees to retire the debt of those choosing primary care if you can't stand the idea of reducing our trillion dollar deficits created by healthcare. More than any other factor, in fact, it's 48% of the federal budget is tied to the healthcare, according to a study from our guest today. A second solution for the shortages is to allow foreign medical grads to skip a second residency. These are the very best and the very brightest minds from India, Mexico, Nigeria, and about 60 other countries with an interest in making more than 20,000 their whole career that they would make in their home country. This is exactly who bailed us out of the last exact same shortage predicted with the same numbers 20 years ago that never happened. And they happily fulfill rural gaps, geriatric treatment centers, internal medicine, which in the U.S. doctors seem to be avoiding. So ask any farmer, roughneck, or logger, they're likely to have a foreign-trained MD and are very happy with them. Five visionary states in America are trying to do this. We have 23,000 PDs alone that have all passed English exams and yet are slot backlogged because there's only 5,000 available out of those 32,500 I mentioned earlier. So what's happening to these doctors is they're exploited just like a farm worker is in that they are paid 30 to 40,000 wages in clinics I've seen here in Houston, Texas, near our hobby airport. So here's a doctor that would be making 20 in their home country. Now they're billed out at 80 or 90 or 100, but they're only paid 30. I say shame on the exploiters for doing that. And number three, we're currently graduating a million nurses every four years, but half of them drop out by year two. Without a VP level nurse with a training, retention, recruitment budget, we treat all of the nurses as invisible and not valuable. So today, without a budget or a champion, they feel like meat in a grinder and they feel invisible. The true real answer to all of these problems for the doctor shortage is direct primary care. We have more than enough PCPs to treat every American with a panel of 660 versus the 2,500 average doctors have today. And that would eliminate factory medicine, burnout, and a lot of medical errors where the doctor is seeing four to six patients a day versus 25 to 35 a day, and they're not buried in a computer tapping away like a secretary. So 
I'm really excited to introduce our guest today. She's literally gone from a nun helping the poor to helping the White House. She's an epidemiologist on the faculty of Georgetown U Medical School, which if you're from that area, it's a terrific school. And she has a master of science degree in infectious disease epidemiology from Harvard and has an undergraduate degree in sociology. But that's not the most shocking part. She literally spent two years on the streets of the poorest of the poor in countries like East Africa and industrial Russia and inner city America as a nun. She worked with global companies after that to protect the workforce from infectious diseases and then served five U.S. senators as a health policy advisor most recently was on President Trump's Domestic Policy Council as the top policy health advisor. And her job was to advance the president's agenda and increase healthcare price transparency, price competition, end surprise medical bills, lower prescription drug prices, and expand affordable options in the individual and ERISA markets, and reduce the burdens of the Affordable Care Act and promote innovative employer-sponsored coverage models and expand health IT interoperability along with issues like the opioid crisis and HIV. It's a long list. So today, she's a benefits advisor with her own firm. She's a media sensation because she is getting on the air and talking the truth. And uh, she's a mother with two kiddos. Can we start by asking you about being a nun? Katie Talento. <laughs> How did that happen? Hi. Hi there. <laughs> well, I like to say that uh, my third boss in the Senate, Senator Tom Coburn from Oklahoma, drove me to the nunnery. But he was the most, um, he was the most fun senator I worked for. I loved him. They were all great, but he was crazy. We, he, he drove us hard and I just had to get out. I got to tell you, I'm, I'm impressed that they brought an epidemiologist on their staff. I thought the health policy advisors would be some law school flunky who did a lot of reading, but you actually know what you're talking about. Well, it's funny you would say that. I started off as the Public Health Service Act portfolio on the committee that oversaw HHS. And the real problem is that little Republican children don't grow up wanting to be public health experts. And so there just aren't any. And I, I wasn't really qualified. I'd never worked in policy before, but I, I knew some people and, you know, they were kind of desperate. I, I would not have hired me later. So I, they made a mistake, but it turned out to be great for me. And I moved from the public health portfolio eventually over to sort of more bread and butter health care. But I never lost that passion for the global health issues, tropical health, um, infectious disease, and sort of old school, traditional remove the handle from the well type public health. Yeah, but you just blew me away by saying your first portfolio was HHS. That's 25% of our federal budget. Yeah. That's a, they're spending right now $100 billion a month for the first, and no agency in the history of the world has ever spent $100 billion a month. And that's 86% Medicare, Medicaid. The rest is things like NIH and CDC. But that's a big budget for a rookie. Yes, it is. Well, the company I worked on oversaw HHS, and there were eight of us. I just did the Public Health Service Act agencies, so CDC, NIH, SAMHSA, are a few others, but FDA, but we, we shared it. We split it. So I started off just basic public health stuff, but other people did insurance and Medicare, Medicaid. I eventually moved into those things later. Incredible. All right. So then you got degrees with, and you started doing consulting in epidemiology, and you found yourself on the Senate staff. How does the Senate staff come to priorities? Because there is such a large laundry list of things broken in healthcare, and it seems to us outsiders that the Senate is actually not interested in fixing any of that because they have to rely on lobby money to get reelected. They simply 
with $565 million of big healthcare money at stake, they can't afford to shake that tree and lose that funding. How do you set priorities when you have that kind of lobbying pressure on the Senate? Yeah, well, priorities are always set. It's just a matter of who sets them, right? I will say that I'm old enough to remember when we used to do things in the Congress. You know, we used to pass bills. There used to be a way to make a difference, which is why, you know, young kids would come to Capitol Hill and and work there the long hours for little pay. They would do it because they wanted to make a difference. And we used to legislate and we used to be able to file amendments on the floor and negotiate and do bipartisan bills and amendments, see your bills enacted, go to signing ceremonies in the Rose Garden. You know, I don't think, I think Congress has really been broken since about 2008 or 2010. And that's almost when it stops being kind of fun. Because at that point, I feel like Congress so much right now is just sort of talking past each other. And as a result, a lot of the staff aren't learning the basic skills of the trade. I mean, senators and members of the House think that trained monkeys can do our jobs, but really there are skills to legislating, negotiating, the process. You can really only learn on the job because it's such a niche area and, you know, learning Senate floor procedure or whatever, that you can really only learn them on the job. And if you're not doing them during your job, you don't learn them. And then you have people in management who've never negotiated a bill into enactment, who've never worked with the other party. So it's shocking to me that a lot of the staff just can't do that anymore. And, and I think that's contributing that even when you have members of Congress now who, who do want to work together and have an inclination to cross the aisle and try to get something done, such as on surprise billing, a lot of times you, you just don't have the, the knowledge base of how to overcome the opposition is really hard, like you said. So we've got, for instance, in the Senate, Senator Lamar Alexander, chairman of the committee that oversees HHS, is ranking Democrat member is Patty Murray. They're both extremely knowledgeable and experienced, and they both really want to get something done on surprise billing and PBM spread pricing and generic shenanigans in the pharmaceutical supply chain. So they've managed to extort the vote for this bill out of out of committee, and they can't they can't get it done because of these special interests who have just lit up every other member and, and private equity has started running ads in, in in swing states behind in these dark money groups that took investigative reporters weeks to figure out who was behind these ads. They're really scaremongering members. Hospitals are gonna close, doctors are gonna go bankrupt, patients won't be able to get care. I mean it's ludicrous the scare tactics that have been but it's asymmetric warfare, Rob. I mean, it's, you've got employers on one side who have reasons to spend their money. So if, you, if you're a business, let's say you make tractors or you, you, you're a farmer and you grow corn, you don't have the financial wherewithal to spend all your money on your healthcare issues in Washington. You're too busy funding your lobbyists on trade or on manufacturing issues or infrastructure issues that are, that are relevant to your core business. So what these guys do is they, these employers out there, they, they pay dues to associations, business associations in Washington that they are, are told will represent their interests. But these associations are completely outgunned, completely outfunded and outmatched and sometimes even co-opted. So when it comes you know, for them, it's not an ex- healthcare costs are not an existential threat for 
for these associations, whereas it is for the other industries. Let me jump in here and give you some numbers that are all publicly available. Number one, there's about 12,000 registered lobbyists in the federal register. Number two, one in five of them are health, big healthcare lobbyists, okay? And that doesn't include the state lobbies or the city council or any of those other county level, lower level, but one in five. The number two, the 556 million I talked about, that is more than big tech, big oil, big defense, and Wall Street combined. So if you could add up all the lobbies of the next four biggest lobbying groups, special interests, they still don't touch healthcare, big healthcare alone. And big healthcare, when I say is that's going to be big hospitals, that's going to be the pharmacy lobby, that's the medical device lobby, that's going to be the insurance lobby, mm -hmm. and of course the PBMs. So if you just look at those five categories, that is quite a spin that they quite a power, and they vote and look together to get bills, their little goodies and bills. If Lamar's bill would have made it, their goodies would have had to be in the bill or they weren't going to support it because that's exactly what happened with OC ACA. And who gets left out of that, by the way, are the doctors. They're not at the big boy table right now with the money spending that is going on at that other caliber. And you mentioned dark money. Dark money is estimated, Katie, and you could maybe verify this, to be equal to the FEC reported money. So if they're spending half a billion FEC reported, there's going to be another half billion dark money spent. So that's a billion a year spent to influence Washington and state capitals. Is that just... Well Shocking. Well, I will tell you that the doctors really have played a big role in killing the surprise billing legislation. They absolutely have, either through the private equity staffing firms. I would say they're the most powerful entity in this particular issue. But it's not just them. I, I've heard from members of Congress that the state medical associations or the local surgeons from their hospital who operate on their kids would call them up and they were they were spouting the private equity staffing firm's talking point. And I don't understand it because most doctors aren't doing these these shenanigans with the surprise billing. And you're not seeing that in most doctors. And, and they'll be the first ones to argue. They'll be the first ones to say, that's not us, that's not me. But then why are they carrying water for the minority of them that are? It's, it's been shameful. It's been a disgrace to watch the whole process. Well, the, the AMA spends about $11 million, and they're by far the biggest of all the physician groups spending, and they only have 10 to 12% of all doctors as members, so yeah. whatever power they once had, it's quite a bit less now. And then the next groups down below, most of them under a million dollars of influence. Again, you know, the doctors are maybe loud in this one issue, but they never got a seat at the table for all these other big issues. So let's, let's talk for a second about another subject, which is, should we expect Superman to come out of Washington or our state capital with all this lobbying money floating around, or should we look for the entrepreneurial solutions from the fringes? Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why I got out of government and I looked around and said, where is, where is the exciting stuff happening? And I decided to become a benefit consultant or broker because the, all the excitement is in the self-insured innovative employer space. And that's where you can bring so much value it's almost too easy to bring a ton of value in the productive side of the economy. It's really exciting. And that is, I think, ultimately, these employers are going to have to show everyone, they're going to have to show each other the way, because Washington isn't going to get it done, at least not immediately, if ever. And, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of the hospitals trying to, you know, they're, they're entering into ACOs and other value-based arrangements that benefit them and insurers. And I'm not sure that they always benefit the employers. I think these employers, they're going to have to sort of evangelize each other. You know, you know what I think is possibly to happen, and I want your thoughts on this. As people leave the brands, the big brands and in insurance, they're 
is a possibility of what's happening exactly in Australia right now. And I understand one state in the Midwest is actually having this happen with one of the big uh, bucas, that there's a death spiral. Are you familiar with what that means? A death spiral in the individual market or in the risk group market? In the insurance market, what happens with two eagles is they can uh, love each other to death and crash to the ground. Everybody knows what a death spiral is. In ice skating, it's when the young lady's ponytail is being gently touched in a giant circle by her partner. And in insurance, it's when all the healthy young people leave and leave behind old and sick. Yes, I mean, we, we, certainly, we certainly see the death spiral in the individual market in the Obamacare exchanges is where we typically use that term. I had not heard about something like that happening in the group market. Well, the reason I'm not mentioning company names or states is because you, this is literally almost like a run on the bank or contagion, and you don't want to see something like that spread. Wow. So I'm not going to start rumors, or but I've heard from people that are know, that would know this at the very top levels. I talked to a lot of benefits brokers, and they're now starting to tell me that some of these large employers, and maybe some of your clients, are telling the insurance companies in a few years they can shove it. Are you getting any of that anger, <laughs> that level of anger from your clients? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that people are really open-minded in a way they never have been. I mean, typically employers want to keep their employees happy, and they don't want to rock the boat, and they're very risk-averse. Even smaller ones that are getting eaten for lunch. They're, they're very they're sort of loathe to upset the apple cart and try something crazy and new, but it's gotten so bad and so unsustainable. And I mean, we've been saying unsustainable, this is all unsustainable as a word we use in Washington a lot for, for decades. But I mean, ultimately that means it, it shall not be sustained. <laughs> and I think that's what we're seeing. I think we're at a tipping point. Yeah, so the tipping point I see is that HHS now spends $100 billion a month, and it's only going to go up as more are heading into Medicare 10000 a day. That number can't go down. It's only going up. And by the way, the generation behind us is much larger than the baby boom. So it's just not only, it's just, there's nothing positive about the metrics of that. So let me, let's switch subject a little bit because there's a whole lot to talk about with you. And we're going to obviously have to do a second show, but Mary Meeker said that 65% of all people are signing up for new companies based on the health insurance that they are offered. So most Americans now are looking to health insurance as the number one issue, more even so than compensation. But the strange thing about that is that over half of all Americans make under $20 an hour, 56%. So if over half are making that kind of money, they cannot afford these $1,650 individual deductibles and $4,500 family deductibles. So they're joining for the insurance that they can't even get in the treehouse because there's no ladder because of the lack of liquidity, they don't have the savings. What do you have to say about that? Right, you're talking about when people get coverage because they think that if they have coverage that they'll be protected from catastrophic ruin, but instead they have coverage they can't afford to use. Yes. You know, we've been talking in Washington for so long, we've been about coverage because we, we had this predication that if you have coverage, you won't be bankrupted by healthcare. And that has dictated policy forever. It's why we had the big fight over the ACA. It was about coverage. All our fights have been about coverage. Who gets it, what it covers, who pays for it, who's eligible. So we spent all this time agitating about coverage, focusing on the 47 million uninsured. Now we still have 30 million under uninsured. We've got 10 million people on the exchanges, 20 million in Medicaid can and people can't afford to use the coverage we provided, but m even worse than that, in spending massive amounts of political energy on the ACA, when the other 300 million people in America also can't afford their healthcare, and they are insured. 
So where are we? I really think that the, the dialogue has completely shifted from coverage now that most people are insured. Now it's cost and it's, it's prices and what are we going to do for the people who are insured who are still going bankrupt? Okay, so there's 330 million Americans. We've got 300 million that are theoretically insured and 30 that aren't. But of the 300 that are insured, how many of them are functionally uninsured? Right. Which means the fact that they can't, they have deductibles they simply can't afford, so they'd have nothing. That's right. I think, I don't know. I don't know what that number is. I'm sure it, is, it can be known. I don't know it. Okay. But it's bad. I mean, there's, a, there's something like 40%, perhaps, between 30 and 40% of all employer-sponsored insurance is a high deductible plan. Yeah. So you can assume that, that those are underinsured. Okay. Well, so let's change subjects a little bit. Then, so you're, there's not an easy answer to that question. Let's throw a question out that maybe there is an answer to. What would it take to turn around physician burnout? Which is, again, over half of physicians are walking around depressed, disengaged. Well, we've all been there before, so it, we don't have to describe it even. And 78% in any given time in the course of a year are going to have burnout symptoms. So three out of four doctors. Do you want your surgeon who's going in to help your dad with heart surgery or your, help your mom with orthopedics? To be depressed. I mean, what can we do about burnout, in your opinion? Right. I mean, you're already doing it, right? I mean, I think I think the answer is very clear. It's direct primary care, and it's direct contracting, and it's networks of direct contracting, startup vendors for doctors, telemedicine. This is the future in the in on-site clinics, right? Being part of a high a high-performing network where even if you, I mean, I think the solution for primary care is obvious, right? On-site clinics, direct primary care where you, you have real ownership over keeping a population healthy and you're, you're able to do that sort of Norman Rockwell picture of primary care that, that everyone got into primary care to do. And instead they got shuffled into some corporate system where you have to take off a whole day of work just to go see your primary care doctor for six minutes and you have to go through a bulletproof glass and five gatekeepers just to get to that six minutes. It's miserable. The entire process is miserable. And then you have to just get referred to some high cost specialist or some high overpriced imaging test or lab test, it, it's miserable. It's obviously direct primary care is the way out for primary care and, and those docs and on-site clinics where they can practice there too. Well, the good news about direct primary care, by the way, I'm a patient and my employees are all patients of direct primary care for two years. I had zero turnover last year. So my retention was 100%. My absenteeism was like cut in half. Presenteeism, I don't know how to measure, but you know, coming to work, not check in because their kid has pink eye. That's not happening anymore because it's right. a prescription over the phone or by text. So it's really, life is very different in my company than it ever was before. And I have no trouble recruiting good people when I say free healthcare day one, no premium, no copay, no deduction. It's not just good for doctors, it's good for patients, of course. Yeah, but it's, the interesting thing about DPC, it's been around for 10 years kind of as a named entity. It had, you know, different other in, names for it before, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. it's only 1,106 practices today in America, and they're adding another 100 next year. But the real exciting thing I see going on in direct primary care that's going to turn it in from what 100 to literally hundreds of new clinics in the next three to five years, is more and more DPCs are starting to recognize that if they work with people like Katie Talento and offer them a systematic series of clinics in the state or region that they can now offer employers as something that they can use instead of, you know, lemonade stand over here and another lemonade stand next door. That's right. It's true that when I think about, you know, when I think about putting a plan together for a group, I'm going to want to, I mean, I haven't been doing this very long, but I'm going to want to be working with, you know, in-person clinics. It's really hard. I always tend toward digital platforms because if you've got a smaller group, how do you get enough coverage, right? 
So you're exactly right that the future definitely, I mean, that I would love to see is for doctors banding together and offering broader coverage and more sites to employers of all sizes. Yes. And by the way, the DPC conferences joke around that they have the happiest medical conferences in America because nobody's burned out and there's no talk about suicide. I think that's great. Yeah. All right. So let's shift, shift gears from burnout because there seem to be answers there that are wonderful. Let's talk about right now we have a sort of a bad direction with federal spending in healthcare, and there's nothing that can seem to seemingly turn that around. If you were president or you, you were able to influence you know, what's going on, what would you do to cut out some of the waste and fraud and abuse that's going on? And is there any easy, simple solution, or is it just all going to be lots of lawsuits like the Trump administration is facing now with surprise billing and transparency issues? Is it just going to be another lawsuit after another lawsuit after another lawsuit? I do. I think that we used to call this the butt Trump legal theory. On the inside, we would say, well, we promulgate a perfectly lawful regulation that we have plenty of statutory authority to promulgate and it gets to a court and some judge says, well, this is totally lawful, but Trump, so nationwide injunction. And it seems like, you know, it's, just, it's sort of a crapshoot as to what kind of judge you get is what determines the outcome as opposed to any sort of objective lawfulness standard. It's shocking. Now, we haven't gotten there in the transparency regulations yet. We haven't worked, that hasn't worked its way through the courts. I'm very hopeful we do have the authority we are very careful about the authority we cited, and there is more than one set of authorities under which the secretary put these regs in place. The insurers, I presume, are preparing their lawsuit. Their regulation hasn't been finalized yet. This is the regulation that would require insurers to post their prices publicly, their negotiated prices. The regulation that requires that of hospitals has been finalized, and of course, they promptly sued us. There are four major associations. I do think that price transparency if there is any sort of silver bullet in healthcare, which of course there isn't really, but it is absolutely a necessary step. You cannot possibly have a functioning market without price information for the buyers of care. It, you can call it lots of things, but it's not a market. Yeah. And what you're talking about with the federal spending is really about prices. It's being driven by prices. And if we're ever going to get Medicare spending, Medicaid spending, all of that down, we've got to have underlying prices down. Now, the millennials that are going to represent 75% of our workforce over the next 10 years are not going to put up with this inconvenient, non-simple, no. uh, overdrawn, hidden hidden agenda. They're going to change it. Right. They want they want Uber. That's right. And they're not wrong. They should get it. We're going to talk another time, I hope, in 2020 and face brighter times ahead. But I really get excited about the future when I talk to folks like you and when I talk to other people on this show that have actual solutions to these problems. First of all, how do we find you if people want to hire Katie? You can always find me at my website, which is KF is in Frank, kftconsulting.com. That's my initials, kftconsulting.com. Or you can email me at Katie, K-A-T-Y, at kftconsulting.com. Very good. Thank you. You can always find me on LinkedIn, too. Oh, yes, we can. You're great posting there. Final question is, if you could fly a banner over America that would improve everybody's understanding of healthcare, what would that say? It would say, end secret prices. <laughs> okay. Short and sweet. <laughs> and that's how we'll end this interview. Thank you so much for your time. This is awesome, and we'll look forward to next time. Thank you. I appreciate the time. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by 
listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.